For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, hear the voices of some of the people who gathered on the border last weekend to make political statements about immigration. Tony Perkins talks with Dee O'Hara, who in 1959 was a nurse chosen to be part of the terrestrial side of the NASA space program. And from classical to swing, let's explore the musical possibilities of the harp with virtuoso performer Christine Vavona. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Last Saturday, more than 700 protests and demonstrations taking a stand on Trump administration border policy occurred across the United States. As many as 1,000 people gathered in Tucson, another demonstration happened on both sides of the border fence in Nogales. A crowd of more than 300 people assembled on Main Street, causing the Nogales port of entry to be closed for about an hour. Nancy Montoya was there, and she brought back this report. Welcome. I just finished this song on the highway, so... Tucson singer-songwriter Pablo Peregrina sings about the crisis at the border. More than 300 demonstrators who showed up to protest family separations at the border agree. There's a crisis at the border, the sun is sizzling hot, this issue started boiling, escalating, and it just won't stop. This is personal, says Sandra Schulman, a longtime Tucson resident. What's your country of origin, Sandra? Bucharest, Romania. I'm here to protest because I'm an assimilated American. I became a, I became a citizen of the United States, which changed my life forever. I cannot imagine, as an immigrant, as a Jew, put little kids in cages, take them from their parents. It's just, it's beyond abusive, it's cruel, it's Machiavellian, it's devilish, it's not humane, and it's to stop. Reverend John Fife from Southside Presbyterian Church told the crowd that this is not just about immigration. We are here because we realize the soul of this nation is at stake. Now I talked with other clergy at the protests, like Pamela Hyde. She's the assistant rector from St. Francis in the Valley Episcopal Church in Green Valley. This is, uh, we're now embarking on a path that we don't want to be on. From our religious tradition, we're taught that, that Jesus told us to when we do to the least of those, we do it to him. Whether coming from a religious point of view or a patriotic one, those who brave the searing heat at march to the border are those who live and work near the borderlands. Congressman Raul Grijalva is their representative in Washington. He walked alongside his constituents. To lend support and credence to the fact that the people in the borderlands need to be heard. My Republican colleagues like McSally and others come to the border, take a, take a photo up in front of the wall, 
chat with Border Patrol chief and leave. I wish someday they would come and talk to these people uh, and, and understand that for them, the borderlands is not a hellhole, it is their home. And today they're here defending that home and defending uh, some righteous uh, issues such as ending uh, zero tolerance and ending family separation. Organizers of the march insist this is not about blue versus red, but about doing what is good for the country. That's what Beth Castro believes. And I understand you're the daughter of the former governor, Raul Castro. Why are you here, Beth? I'm here because many years ago, as many people remember, my father immigrated across the border with his mother and 12 siblings came across the border and the border patrol said, you're in America now, it's up to you to make it, to make yourself successful. While Raul Castro led an exceptional life, his daughter maintains immigrants are hungry to do right by their families and this country. And I totally believe that, that we need to have that opportunity for these, for these families. They should not be inhumanely caged. The Reverend John Fife, the father of the sanctuary movement of the 1980s, said he's been here before. He said the U.S. is a nation of laws, but that it is the Trump administration and the Customs and Border Protection that are breaking U.S. and international laws. Now, what I want you to learn is what we learned, and that's a very simple law, and that says anyone who is a refugee can cross this border anywhere. And no president and no attorney general can ever say they're criminals or they're illegals or lock them up. They are exercising their rights under United States law and we stand with them here and across the country today. There are many I talk to who describe themselves as voting Republicans. They preferred not to be interviewed. One couple saying, we're here, that should speak volumes. And finally, as I was leaving the protest, I spotted a woman standing quietly at the edge of the demonstration with her children. Her name is Stephanie Funk Criery. Stephanie, I see you here with three children, yes. about the same ages of children who are being separated from their families. Why are you here today? I'm here. I have five sons. I once lost this little guy for about 32 minutes, and I thought I was going to die. And, you know, I'm lucky enough that police brought him home to me. And I cannot imagine for one second what it's like to go days without knowing, without communication. I can't, I, it, this can't happen, this can't happen. We can't let it happen without speaking up, without doing everything we can. When we won't let it be, that's right, we won't let it be. Now 17 state attorneys general and the District of Columbia have sued President Donald Trump and his administration over family separations. Arizona is not one of those states. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Nancy Montoya.
You can follow all of AZPM's border and immigration reporting online at news.azpm.org. This region's starring role in the history of U.S. astronomy makes it a logical place to hold an annual event that pays tribute to the final frontier. Over the weekend, the ninth annual Space Fest is focused on NASA and the amazing achievements made by men and women that led from slide rules and rocketry tests to footsteps on the moon. Next, Tony Perkins has an interview with a member of the space program whose name isn't listed in many history books, even though she was an eyewitness to unforgettable history. The year was 1959. Researchers were busy turning science fiction into fact. Dee O'Hara was an Air Force nurse stationed near Cape Canaveral, Florida, when the center commander asked her to participate in a new project. She would work with NASA's Mercury 7 astronauts, preparing them for the United States' first manned flights into space. In the early days, we had no idea what the effects of weightlessness, prolonged weightlessness, if you will, was going to, how it was going to affect the body. And, you know, were they going to be able to, there wasn't, I don't think, great concern, but mainly uh, what were the effects of weightlessness on the cardiovascular system and uh, blood flow, and, and were they going to be able to eat and swallow, basic things like that. And I, I think those were the main concerns. This Project Mercury candidate is preparing for stress. The weight of eight gravities will thrust upon him as he rides the human centrifuge. But what about the concern of the astronauts themselves? O'Hara notes the Mercury pioneers were all test pilots worried about achieving each mission's goals, finding out if someone could live and work in space. Perhaps maybe a hint of apprehension because of sitting on top of a, of a rocket, uh, that would kind of scare the bejesus out of most people. O'Hara says the movie The Right Stuff took dramatic license about all the poking and prodding medical staffers put the astronauts through. But she maintains the filmmakers got one thing exactly right. They're test pilots and they're used to facing danger and, and problems and that sort of thing. So they really didn't have any, uh, uh, those of us on the ground were more concerned uh, than they were. You know, they re, the design of the suit and, and uh, so that they would be able to, to pick up things and, and move more. But with each flight, you learn that, uh, gee, weightlessness didn't really affect that particular system, or uh, they certainly did okay doing this and that. They were able to eat. They were able to swallow and void and do all of those things. And so, again, it was just uh, each mission you gained that much more confidence. A dozen more astronauts flew into orbit after the Mercury 7 and medical researchers learned more on each flight. By the time Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin landed Apollo 11 on the moon in 1969, NASA was confident about long-duration flights into space. But two missions later, an Apollo astronaut's ambitions were stopped before launch because of an earthbound worry, exposure to the measles. Dee O'Hara remembers NASA's alarm when flight doctors diagnosed pilot Ken Mattingly only days before the Apollo 13 flight. They could not risk uh, having him um, be in behind the moon, if you will, which, given the incubation period, 
of 21 days, uh, he would have been behind the moon, and then to have him come down with either a fever or just feeling uh, terrible. As dramatized in the movie Apollo 13, NASA officials decided to call up a backup crew member, Jack Swigert, to take Mattingly's place. Actor Tom Hanks portrayed Mission Commander Jim Lovell. He's a fine pilot, but when was the last time he was in a simulator? I'm sorry, Jim, I understand how you feel. Now, we can do one of two things here. We can either scrub Mattingly and go with Swigert, or we can bump all three of you to a later mission. Jim, if you hold out for Ken, you will not be on Apollo 13. It's your decision. Apollo 13 flew with Swigert on board and almost turned into a disaster because of a spacecraft explosion. Mattingly worked with ground crew members to bring the astronauts home safely. Then, as O'Hara recalls, Mattingly received better news. He was assigned to another mission, Apollo 16, and would have his chance to go to the moon after all. He really lucked out, and uh, at the time it didn't seem like that, but he really, uh, he really lucked out and, and, and had a great mission, uh, given all the heartbreak of uh, being removed from, from uh, 13. O'Hara worked on every NASA manned spaceflight mission for 25 years, including the first space shuttle mission. She says the lessons learned by the early astronauts related directly to life on Earth, maintaining good health, allows you to perform at your peak no matter if you're making your daily commute to work or guiding a spacecraft among the stars. I'm Tony Perkins for Arizona Spotlight. Tony Perkins interviewed NASA researcher and nurse Dee O'Hara. She's one of dozens of guests at this weekend's ninth annual Space Fest, Friday through Sunday at the Star Pass Resort in Tucson. You don't meet a harp player every day, but the harp's range and versatility truly makes it an instrument for all seasons. Next, I'll interview virtuoso performer Christine Vavona about her dedication to the harp as she prepares for a busy season, performing live and in studio for weddings and funerals, and her favorite, playing jazz with her husband, trombonist Rob Boone, in small combos for the Sizzling Summer Sounds music series. I do a lot of weddings, which I love. I just love playing. I love being in people's lives when they're happiest. So I do a lot of weddings, parties. Uh, I do symphonies, the True Concord, this invisible theater, sizzling summer sounds that's coming up. Uh, birthday parties, all kinds of events. I do a lot of recordings also. So people that are doing their own album and just want, you know, a beautiful ethereal music like that or if you listen to movies you hear harp constantly so i think people are not aware that they're hearing harp as much as they actually are 
harps and pianos have something in common in that they are almost an, an orchestra to themselves. Give us an example of some of the highest sounds you can make and some of the lowest in pitch. Okay, so let's, just the pure sound. I mean, that's a high. It's pretty plucky, and this is the low one. But we can do so much more. Like I said, you can do the glissando, the ever ubiquitous glissando. And really just have a huge range. You can do those in all different keys to create a mood. A lot of times Bernard Herrmann would use the harp very dramatically in Alfred Hitchcock's scores. Right. What was it for you? What turned the key to make you so interested in the harp? My sister started playing the harp. Uh, we lived in Thailand when I was young and couldn't find a harp teacher. And then when we moved to New York, my parents found a harp teacher and a harp. She studied for about six months to a year and decided to go back to playing the flute, but my mother loved a gold harp in the living room. So I started playing, um, you know, <laughs> hot cross buns first thing, but I quickly graduated to uh, more complicated pieces, and I loved the fact that I was the only girl, the only person in my school that played harp. It gave me uh, a unique identity. And so I got to study with some amazing teachers, the person that taught Harpo Marx, Mildred Dilling, and she would have monthly workshops. So famous uh, harpists were there, people that were studying at school, at Juilliard. That's when I got the idea that I had to go to Juilliard. And also famous uh, performers. And there was one lady who's still alive in California, Corky Hale, who came in. And she's married to um, Mike Stoller, who wrote Hound Dog, Kansas City, yeah. all those great tunes. Yeah. Lieber and, and Stoller. She, yeah. And she was a wonderful pianist, but also a good jazz harpist. And I heard Night and Day. And I heard, you know, Fats Waller and things like that. And I, that's the kind of music I wanted to play. I wanted to play pieces that people knew and fun pieces. I mean, I love classical music, but how many people, you know, know... harpist but not necessarily your friends and I wanted to play pieces that my friends knew. I know that some musical instruments take a toll on the players bodies. Anyone who works with stringed instruments develops calluses. What kind of um, sacrifices have you had to make physically? <laughs> the calluses are the first and foremost. I mean I remember in elementary school being so proud of my callus from playing a piece with a lot of glissandos and a friend said, oh, you know, my boyfriend in fifth grade or sixth grade was not going to want to hold my hand because of the callus. And my first thought was, I am so proud of my calluses. So <laughs> that's aside. Uh, some harpists don't do dishes. I unfortunately don't use that card. <laughs> <laughs> but then this harp is almost 90 pounds. There's a balance point on all harps. So it's not like we're holding that weight, but we have to be able to see both sets of strings and we try to sit level but in all probability we end up a little like this playing and so we're always having neck issues or you know just tension so you know if you take care of yourself work out have massages that that's pretty good and then just the physicality of picking up the harp and putting it in the car it takes a little bit of um, strength but um, at Juilliard we had classes in Alexander technique so how to move your body by using the muscles that were necessary not the other 
muscles. I see. What else should uh, someone know about the care and feeding of a harp? I mean, first of all, about how many harps do you yourself own? I do have quite a few harps. I have two harps currently that are this size. This is the full-size concert harp, 47 strings, but extended soundboard. So I have two of these that I play. My other one, I actually play more jazz. This one, I do more of the classical. Um, then I have a semi-grand that was Mildred Dilling's harp, so Harpo Marx played that. Uh, and then I have a smaller pedal harp that I rent. Well, if you leave a harp uh, alone for a while and come back to it, uh, are the strings more likely to break? Is it just a matter of getting it back in tune? So you really want to have your harp tuned all the time. Uh, even if you're not playing it at the house, you really at least once a week have to be tuning it. This size harp, there are over 2,000 pounds of pressure on it. And they build the harp so that they want the harps to go back to that tension. So you, you want to always be tuning the harp to have it. This is my tuning key. I have them in all different colors. I have them in all cars and purses, <laughs> etc. You never want to be alone. But I do know... My son is a drummer, and that the drum key will fit in a pinch. Um, so you you need to have your harp tuned, even if you're not playing it a lot, at least once a week or so. You mentioned your son being a musician. That seems logical because he has musical parents. Tell us a little bit about your husband and what kind of a duet chemistry sure. you're able to get. So my husband, Rob Boone, plays piano and trombone, and both our boys play musical instruments. We have a family band. Uh, they're on opposite coasts. One, the older is the bass player. He's an actor in L.A., hmm. and the youngest is an optical engineer in Philly, and he's our drummer. Uh, but Rob and I do a lot of concerts together. The Sizzling Summer Sounds will be playing together and joined with uh, Ray Templin, a wonderful, wonderful pianist that has made his career in Disney. Uh, but Rob and I play from church gigs to jazz concerts to the Chandler Jazz Festival in November, uh, Dixieland. Uh, so we do all kinds of things. Can you give us a touch of Dixieland? Sure, love to. Fat Swaller, love that style. Teaching a class of young performers who are learning harp, what's one of the first things that you teach them? We're, we're all trying to make people perform the best that they can and play the best they can all the time. There's no difference between a lesson performance, practicing at home, and performing in public. If we always have that same demeanor, then I, th I think it lessens anxiety because growing up, I did not have that many opportunities to perform, and so it was a big deal for me. So I make sure for my students from the very beginning that they are performing. I have several recitals throughout the year, 
And then I make them do little performances in their lessons for me so that they have that ability. But really, it's it's playing beautiful music. Mildred Dilling, the first teacher, you know, that taught Harper Marx, used to say, why play this instrument if you're not going to have a beautiful sound? I mean, it's just such a lovely, lovely sound. And if you're not going to do what it takes to have that sound, why bother? And now Christine Vavona performs the prelude in C for harp by Prokofiev. The Sizzling Summer Sound series kicks off on Tuesday, July 10th, with Christine Vavona and her husband Rob as part of a Tucson All-Star Ensemble. The Invisible Theater presents two weeks of musical cabaret at Llanos Downtown Kitchen Carriage House. Christine and Rob will perform again on July 12th, joined by pianist Ray Templin, for an evening of 20th century jazz. There's a link to the complete schedule on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes and through the phone app NPR One. The show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.